70 record closing highs so far for the day. Blasting through a ceiling. In a record-setting IPO. Investors who have been riding the wave. When the stock market is booming, we're made to believe the economy is booming. As the stock market goes, so goes the wealth and the health and economy. So what exactly is the stock market measuring? 98.4 Capital FM live from a beautiful Nairobi evening. And for audience worldwide, Karibu Sana, welcome to the Financial Focused alongside accomplished economist Ken Gishinga. And I'm just Danny Muni. <laughs> um, in this magazine, we will be examining global, regional, and local business platforms and spectrums, which will set the context for what we'll be discussing over the next many weeks. So to reach us, all lines are open. 0701984984 or tweet us at Capital FM Kenya to give us any feedback, inquiries, questions, additions, uh, and whatever you have in mind in terms of contributing to this show. The situation around the world must be improving a little bit if you hear so many competent, talented economists say, not as bad as feared. You know, our economies and key players are moving from defense mode which they had been collectively sometimes in 21 and certainly in 22, to competition mode. 22 was just a weird, weird year when you look at it. Inelasticity of supply, no real big engine for growth. If you look at the GDP numbers, it's totally, you know, counterintuitive. Growth in the United States, 1.9%. Growth in China, 3.3%. Growth in Europe, 3.4%. Those are not usual numbers. This is not the normal ranking that you have. So we are now heading to a year where hopefully the corporates, the consumers, the state, policymakers will continue to have that resilient, determined approach in order to engineer the transitions that must take place, whether it's digital, whether it is green, whether it is inclusive, in order to make sure that the most fragile countries in the world benefit from those innovations. So Ken, that was Christine Lagarde, Karibu Sana Capital FM. Thank you very much. This is your show. We'll be taking a lot of uh, understanding and learnings from you. Um, and that was off the Davos summit that just concluded. She sounds rather optimistic and encouraging, Ken. But markets are looking very volatile, however. And what are the chances you're staring at potential inflation, infl inflationary pressures coming out of China, US, and or Europe. Many thanks, Danny. Um, I think uh, Christine's appraisal of the global economy is quite accurate. 2022 was a weird year, and obviously inflation has been a major problem. And there was an expectation that this year might be what you'd call the year of immaculate disinflation. Uh, but it's not really playing out as we had expected. If you look at numbers um, in the EU, it's um, 8.6 down to 8.5. So very uh, small drops in inflation. If you look at the US, 6.5 down to 6.4. So a lot of policymakers are worrying maybe the interest rate hikes are not enough. Maybe they need to do more. And uh, those could be the difficult conversations that could uh, make 2023 another weird year. So besides what we've experienced and seen around the globe in terms of, you know, the, the pandemic uh, which really caused a lot of problems in terms of revenue generation, economic growth. What are some of those reasons or variables that have made 2023 so far 
to look a little bit, you know, not very good? Well, I think it has to be with the response to inflation. Uh, what Christine uh, later on said in the clip uh, that you played uh, is that inflation is a monster that we need to knock on the head. So what the central banks have done is they have really tried to raise interest rates, including here in Kenya. Now, the net effect of that is you make money more expensive and you make uh, activity much slower. And if you look out of the streets right now, this is supposed to be end month, but you can barely see cars on the road. Uh, so it tells you that economic activity is really slowing down because of high interest rates. And the central banks, unfortunately, are saying they'll continue as long as inflation continues to be high, they'll continue to raise those interest rates. So you find the citizens find themselves in a very difficult situation. And I think those are some of the themes that we'll be unpacking today. Mm. You know, it's interesting you say that because, um, in fact, as we were going live, there has been a decline in the U.S. job markets report. And the Fed chairman, the Fed, uh, the Federal Reserve chairman was actually just going live a few minutes, a few moments from now to make some very strong statements in terms of the tough measures they are planning to take against the rising inflation. There is a very huge fear within Wall Street that the U.S. government could default on its debt. I mean, it's something we've heard quite often that the U.S. could default on its debt and it never happens. But what are some of those things that can be what, what would you say is the effect on the global economy in, in, in respect of rebounds uh, matched up to against what's happening in the U.S. right now? Well, the big data points that will help us make that projection uh, is what the Fed chairman is saying right now. As we speak, he's giving his testimony to Congress. Uh, later on, uh, the jobs numbers will actually come on Friday, the U.S. jobs numbers. And there's an expectation that those numbers may be at about 200,000 jobs which is uh, slightly less than what they expected. But there is a feeling that in the states that possibly they need to tighten things. If you look at just some of the sentiments that uh, most of the Fed members are talking about, that there is a feeling that inflation is not coming down quickly enough because these are countries that are used to inflation at 1%, 2%. They, they admire to get to 2%. Now they're at 6%. And for them, it's actually very difficult because if you think about the average American where mortgages are are very abundant in America. When interest rates go up, it means your mortgage payments go up instantly. So for them, inflation is something very real that really, 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 really resonates. So my expectation is possibly more tightening, which could mean the dollar becomes stronger. And, you know, that will have effects not just in America, but here in Kenya in terms of with the shilling too. And, uh, of course, you know, even with the U.S., in terms of mortgages, um there has been a, a steep price in the in the housing sector in the U.S. House prices are actually going up and up and up. So I think that also means in terms of the mortgage that they're paying back, if you've taken any, uh, risk notwithstanding based on the fact that they are trying to tighten it, but it has to go up, then means that means you're paying more, more back to the bank for the mortgage that you've taken, right? Absolutely, a spot on. You know, when you talk about Kenya, I think in Kenya we have about uh, 30,000 mortgages. So it's not a whole lot. Um, so the connection between the average person and interest rates is quite limited. But when you go to the U.S. where the credit markets are touch everybody's lives from a mortgage payment, and you're talking right now mortgage payments of 5% in the U.S. This is in a country where mortgage payments used to be maybe 1%, 2%. So it means your ordinary household that possibly was paying 
monthly payments of maybe a thousand dollars is now paying maybe two thousand three thousand dollars so the ability to buy any other thing uh, becomes very very limited and that's what you find in uh, the interest rates make such a big impact when the fed chairman speaks america normally stands Shakes. still yeah, exactly because <laughs> there's a very very powerful impact which is a bit different here from kenya you know when the cbk raises interest rates uh our commercial banks don't necessarily always raise interest rates uh sometimes they just maintain it sometimes they do sometimes they don't so sometimes you find what you call the transmission signal mm. is a bit uh, weaker here and that's where you find sometimes even when the cbk says something maybe people may not internalize it particularly as, as uh, if you compare it to what happens in the west mm. uh, speaking of the dollar um you know the us economy currencies basically currencies are basically the measure of an economy's performance hence why you'll find very different countries having their own kinds of currencies uh, because this is what actually affects supplies around the world in terms of food oil gas goods investment forex right but also there are world currencies that seem to be competitive are we looking at a space maybe not now in the near future because the dollar is quite strong of any currencies that are sticking their heads out to you know challenge the petrodollar dominance uh, well i mean the dollar really remains the global uh, reserve uh, but you raise an interesting point about the connection between a currency and a country's strength and i think that question needs to be looked at into context in the sense that is that country a net importer or a net exporter if that country is a net importer definitely it wants to have a, a stronger currency you don't have a, and Kenya is a net importer but if you're but if you're a net exporter like Japan like Germany like China and that's why China is always devaluing its currency because it the weaker its currency compared to the dollar the more it exports so it really depends on what is the strategy the country is pursuing if you're pursuing an export led strategy then you actually sometimes are a, a bigger currency works in your favor because your goods become cheaper but in the case of Kenya where we are net importers we import fuel we import food uh we really want this currency to sort of remain a bit more stable and that's why you know before covid we were at about 100 now we're at about uh 124 125 officially but and officially probably even more those are the things that sort of are impacting the dynamics board it's it's something we need to ex- examine further uh based on how c- countries de- determine the the forex and their currencies in the international market uh, you've alluded to something very interesting that based on what you look at as your policy if you are a net importer or a net exporter then that dictates also the strength of the kind of currency you want to hold in your country you know just just looking at the uk they are further looking at the decline of the pound they seem to be having challenges in terms of stocking their shelves with food what do you think is happening with the united kingdom well i think uh, the bank of england uh, like most central banks has really followed the strategy of raising interest rates to counter inflation because inflation in the uk was at some point the highest in 40 years so and again um as i said just like in the us people have mortgages so people feel these interest rate hikes um, immediately so that's been a big issue and obviously during that short period and at least trust things really really uh, deteriorated and those things went very uh, went, went went much up so 
you know, when you listen to the Bank of England governor, he said they will do anything they need to make sure interest rate, I mean, inflation comes down. So I think the expectation is, there was an expectation that the UK will go into recession, but I think if you look at the new numbers right now, they're saying maybe it might be a mild recession. It might not be as bad as what had been expected to be. But as long as inflation is around those high numbers, then uh, central banks will continue to maintain those high interest rates and they will have an Im- impact on and slowing down their overall economy. Exactly, because they also seem to have challenges around uh, their political space. There was a sudden resignation of Scotland's first prime, min- prime uh, minister, Nicola Sturgeon. So there's a bit of instability that also is playing a part in how their economy is shaping out for for this year, right? Indeed, and I think that has actually, you know, UK has gone through what well, Brexit first of all. Yes. So it sort of separated itself from the European Union. So it's in the process of trying to establish its own identity, um, establish new relationships with other countries, uh, bilateral relationships. But now it finds itself in the midst of very high interest rates and an economic slowdown and recession. And a lot of people, you know, they say we miss the good old days when London was the financial hub of Europe, but now it's not. So it's a it's a it's a debatable point. But there is a feeling that maybe what was projected in terms of um, recession is not as bad and possibly uh, even 0% growth for some people is acceptable as long as you don't go into recession. So I expect this year to be a tough year, uh, but, you know, depending on their strategy moving forward, you know, they've been trying to make a trade deal with America. America has been very slow um, on, on that. So I think it's, 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 it's going to get to a place where the UK has to make some very bold moves in terms of you know, giving concessions to other countries to just to make itself, you know, the hub. You know, Danny, there was a point when, at a point when London used to be the place, if you wanted to go exactly. to America, it was a hub. Yes. You know, you had, to, you had to go to Heathrow, you go through, you had to go to America, you go through London. But yes. it sort of stopped being that hub at some point. And a lot of people are asking, how do we turn the United Kingdom to be the hub of the world where everybody used to come to be able to, de- to be diverted? So I think there are big philosophical questions about the future of Britain and the nature of its industries, its tech, in its relationship with countries like China. And I think those will continue to play out. One worried answer to this question. In the possibility that the United Kingdom looks at rejoining the EU, would that be acceptable without them adopting the euro? Well, that's a... Uh, in one word. <laughs> well, I think I need a few more words um, for that. Um, first of all, I think that debate is highly unlikely. You know, in as much as it was a very close debate, there is a feeling that there was a sense of finality um, onto that debate. And even during that time when they were part of the European Union, they did uh, still maintain their currency. So currency sometimes signifies sovereignty. And that's what you find even at that time of the when they were in the European Union, they still maintained the pound sterling. Uh, because, you know, back to your earlier question around U.S. debt, can U.S. you know ever default on its debt? You know, any country that has its debt in its own currency, in the worst case scenario, when you know uh, things are really at the worst case scenario, they can really print their way out of that debt, and that's why it's very important. Even here for Kenya, we really try and make most of our debt domestic and not foreign debt, because foreign debt you lose control of your currency. Right now, for example, in Kenya, half our debt is in foreign exchange. 
if, for example, we don't get the dollars in this market, it becomes very difficult to make payments and you you lose control of your own destiny. And that's where you find all the big currencies, all the big countries, the US, Japan, China, most of their debt is always in their own currency because in the worst case scenario, they might weaken their currency, but they uh, are in their in charge of their own destiny. I think developing countries need to look at that more closely. Let's put a beacon right there. When we get back, we'll discuss a little bit more of Africa, the big giants in Africa, South Africa, Nigeria, and then look at the ESC, a few countries within that, and of course, back home. This is a financial focus to 98.4 Capital FM with Ken Gishinga and myself, Danny Muni. Now, Ken, um, within the region and the continent at large, South Africa is a huge economy. It has contracted by 1.3%, more than they expected. Seven out of the 10 activities within the economy have recorded a negative uh, uh, decline. Definitely, that's a decline. Uganda, in, in within the ESC uh, community, seems to have grown. Uh, the S&P standard ratings have revised the credit outlook to stable. Tanzania also seems to have registered growth within the ESC, considering the you know the variables that affect Kenya in a sense, also kind of affect them. If we look at weather, maybe a pro- prolonged period of drought. But then, what's what's making these economies work that is not working for Kenya? What fiscal po- fiscal policies are they applying in their countries that? maybe we are missing on or we are not taking advantage of? Well, if you look at a country like South Africa, I think that between a rock and a hard place, uh, the power cuts have really uh, damaged industry. Uh, industries such as mining uh, need huge amounts of power to be able to, to, to continue. So you find uh, the, the, the slowdown, part of that contraction has been uh, just because of that, uh, the power issues around the load shedding issues and you know the rand has uh, lost a remarkable value against the dollar. Uh, and Nigeria is sort of like, you know, yes, they have a new leader, they have a new president right now, but, you know, they're really facing a tough, if you look at the macroeconomic condi- indicators there, you're talking of an employment of 33%, underemployment of 23%, you know, inflation at 20%. So the new leader, President Idobo, really needs to uh, really focus on things around job creation. Uh, so you find the big powerhouses uh Nigeria and South Africa you know really at are, are, are at a point where they're really struggling you know if you look at Nigeria's growth over the last seven years it's averaged about one percent so these are two economies that you know should be powering the African continent um are not but when you look at East Africa you know our economies are still fairly agrarian uh in that nature so things around you know the drought still continues um to persist. Uh, whether it's in Uganda or here in Kenya or in Tanzania. Uh, but, you know, when I look at Kenya, uh, I see, you know, when you talk about the powerhouses, Nigeria and South Africa, and we talk about them sort of slowing down, you kind of want to wish that Kenya can be the beacon of transformation, the be the beacon of the African revolution. But it's not quite there because, as you say, the SNP ratings have downgraded us, debt is weighing us down, um, inflation is at near double digits. And you know, we talk about inflation in the West, like in the US, but if you look at the jobs markets in the US, they're very strong. 
Actually, unemployment in the U.S., it's the lowest it's been in 53 years. But you know, when you talk about Kenya, you're talking of high inflation, but also high unemployment. So, you know, the technical term for that is actually like a stagflation, where you're almost stagnating, uh, and but you're still experiencing inflation. So I think we need to, you know, you talk about what fiscal policies we need to implement. That comes down to tax policies. You know, are we applying the right tax policies? You know, right now Kenyans are complaining that, you know, we've really burdened, especially the person at the bottom with the VATs on basic goods and commodities, which is slowing down the economy. So I think part of our fiscal policy has to look at how can we change our tax policy? How do we don't how do we avoid burdening people with um what we call consumption taxes on basic commodities, on fuel, on food, on flour, and how do we allow other parts of the economy to be able to contribute more in terms of tax. So I think that is the turning point that Kenya needs to make. But, you know, Kenya's economy, I think, is of high potential. I think if we can get our tax policy and our fiscal policy right, we can be the part of Africa that is actually uh, investors want to rush to. So I think there's still opportunity for Kenya to be able to take advantage of that. And we'll come back to Kenya, but bringing Nigeria into this picture... It has an interesting outlook, a severely contracted private sector, soaring inflation to a 17-year 17, 17 high peak. The S&P has revised the outlook to negative. Their Naira has hit a record low. They had, they've had a change of currency in the country and a just concluded election. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot to unpack, but this being the biggest economy in Africa, does it look like they are in a position where they can lift themselves from this mud within the next one year? It, it doesn't. And you talked about two powerful issues about uh, the currency change. That was extremely disruptive. It led to extreme chaos. I think the way it was done, it was not as orderly as what we had in Kenya. And that generated, and you know, M-Pesa... You know, mobile money is not as big there as it is here. So when you take cash out of the system, you phenomenally uh, disrupt the lives of people. But even if you look at historically, you know, look at Nigeria's numbers in the 1960s. Nigeria used to be a major agricultural producer. It produced almost every agricultural item. But since the discovery of oil, there's been less and less investment in those sectors and more and more investment in oil and oil-related sectors. And in economics, we call that the Dutch disease. When you have one big sector, it could be oil, it could be gold, it could be aluminum, but uh, it becomes so lucrative that the government forgets about other sectors. So I think part of the prayers that Nigerians will have for the new president is how do we diversify the economy? How do we start growing things? How do we start exporting food? Because Nigeria is still very fertile. How do we um, you know, get agriculture back to where it used to be because it was a bedrock. So I think diversification, really winning the country off just the oil money and really bringing a broad-based prosperity because the thing about agriculture is it can absorb so many people. If you think of manufacturing and oil factories, those are very high-skilled jobs. So only very few people can be absorbed. And talk about agriculture, it can absorb a lot. So I, I really hope that they really think of a diversification as a strategy. Within a diversified economic framework for a country, are you likely to absorb more shocks 
with a stronger, let's say, for instance, what you just said, the Dutch disease or more sectors of the economy that are maybe not at the same par able to bring back into the into the economy, but then you have multiples of them. So as opposed to just having one big sector that has a lot of money, what would you rather? Would you rather have one or variables, multiples? You always want to have a diversified economy. In fact, one of the biggest blessings we have in Kenya, uh, whether it's by accident or by design, um, is we have a very diversified economy. We don't have, you know, we don't have the kind of oil that you see in West Africa. You don't have the kind of gold deposits or copper. So we are not really a mineral-rich economy. So you find uh, most of our resources, what you call above the ground, which is human capital, you know, and investing in human capital, in education, in health care. And that's why you find Kenya is one of the most diversified economies, whether it's tourism, agriculture. And the beautiful thing about a diversified economy is when you have a shock, for example, tourism, if there is, for example, a terror attack, and their travel advisories and tourism is not able to perform, you find agriculture can support the economy or manufacturing or services or banking. Uh, but you don't see that in many African countries. In many African countries, you know, like in Angola, you'll find your copper, your aluminum, when you go to Zambia. You know, in Zambia, if something happens in the copper mines, uh, one of those big companies like Glencore does something, it affects almost everybody's uh, job um, employability. So I think that's one of the best things we have in Kenya. And I hope we can continue diversifying and really being able to be the most diversified economy in because in, it makes you more resilient. Coming back, we'll look at Kenya in a broader extent and just see what exactly we are suffering from and what is ailing us. I think it's evident that a lot needs to be done in terms of what we need to, to do in this country. Welcome to the Financial Focus alongside Ken Gishinga and me, Danny Muni. Now, Ken, Kenya, a lot seems to be happening. A lot seems to be happening in Kenya. And the big news for Kenya at the end of last week was SMB ratings pushing our fiscal credit outlook from stable to negative. What does this mean? Well, what that means is it appears that, you know, our ability to service debt um, is increasingly falling into question. Um, whether you look at um, uh, our foreign debt, things like the euro bond, uh, the market for those is extremely high. It's about 10.2, 10 10.8%. When you talk about the domestic market, still under subscriptions in the bond markets, um, it's only the, you know, like the infrastructure bond, the 17-year bond that everybody has been waiting for to it about 14%. So it talks about an economy that interest rates are, people are demanding very high interest rates. Um, it's unlikely businesses will thrive. And if businesses don't thrive, Danny, um, taxes become harder for the government to raise. And if they can't raise those taxes, the ability to service debt, and half of our debt is domestic debt. So it means those dollars that 
you know, coming from the diaspora, those dollars that come in from tea, you know, they're becoming uh, few and far between. And th- it makes our ability to service those dollar debts much, much tougher. Um, so that's really what that downgrading means. So with the downgrading, does this mean that it makes it di- more difficult for uh, foreign direct investments to come to Kenya? Does it make it more difficult for us to be able to secure loans if we needed to secure loans? Does it make it more difficult for us to access Forex? Well, in terms of ability to um, secure loans, it can make it more expensive. Normally, the lower your credit rating, uh, the more expensive because investors view you as riskier, so they'll demand more compensation in terms of interest rates. In terms of FDI, I think that's a more complex question because when people put in, bring in capital into a country to invest, they look at a broad range of issues. They look at uh, their market segment, for example, uh, but they also do look at the demand for services. And if they do feel an economy is slowing down, it means maybe their goods and services that they're bringing uh, might not be um, taken up as fast as they so it, it can be a concern but it's not the only reason that determines FDI FDI really they look at a broad spectrum of issues but demand for goods and services which is determined by the state of the economy is definitely an important uh, factor and Forex uh, well for Forex um, you know we have to look at what are the key uh, sources of our Forex uh, number one it's uh, diaspora remittances that's the biggest. I think our diaspora centers about $4 billion a year. Um, half of that comes from the United States. So think of your normal person in the U.S. working there who now is facing higher mortgage payments on his mortgage in the U.S. So he is likely to maybe send less um, to his family here. So that could be affected. When you talk about tourism, you know, when we talk about the U.K. being a major source of tourists and the U.K. is entering a recession, you know, what is the probability that many people will take those expensive safaris. It becomes a bit, a bit, a bit tough. When you think about tea right now, okay, yes, Kenya has this butter agreement with uh, Pakistan, which is quite interesting where we export tea and they send us rice. But it tells you uh, our flows of dollars is quite limited. And this is why I say we need to be more export oriented because the more goods you export, the more dollars you attract. We need to transform Kenya to become an export-oriented, which means we need to make things, we need to manufacture things, we need to sell things. And that has to be part of the strategy that we pursue here because when you have such a limited line of dollars coming in, but your debt uh, uh, obligations are constant. Whether you have dollars or not, they are constant. So it puts us in the situation where we are right now today. And whereas it works differently for an individual, if you're a credit risk, then it's more unlikely for you to 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 be able to access capital for a country if you're a credit risk that means you get you still have access to the loans only that they come to you at a higher rate now looking at kenya's consumer price index there there has been mention of inflation softening for the last three months but as we were preparing you mentioned to me that it has actually gone up again how does this does is is the central bank doing enough to be able to fight the 
inflation that is you know taking taking place well uh, danny the definition of inflation is um too much money um chasing too few goods so what the central bank can do is they control they can control the amount of money in the economy they can increase or they can decrease uh but there's a question around the number of goods being produced so the central bank is limited to they can raise or lower interest rates that's all they can do but you know there's always the issue of how many goods are being produced in an economy in terms of productivity because if you have a number of high goods being produced then that issue of too much money chasing too few goods ends because now you have too much money chasing too many goods so inflation is not a big problem so the central bank is limited to monetary policy raising interest rates but i think the bigger question which is now towards treasury fiscal policy is are we making kenya more productive are we harnessing all our factors of production to produce a lot more goods that can be absorbed so that you know that ratio stops to be and i think that's the most powerful question that is not asked a lot because now it involves really going into the factors of production land labor capital are we producing you know people always ask why are we importing wheat from russia which is a war-torn country why are we not producing our wheat here in narok you know why are we importing furniture when you can build this so i think those are the fundamental questions that we need to ask in terms of productivity are we as productive as we can be and my answer is no i think we can there's a lot more that needs to be done in each of those factors of production to be able to make kenya uh sort of like uh more export oriented and more sustainable moving forward so <laughs> where did we go wrong is it is it a case of wasting too much and a lot of misuse or because i think in 1978 kenya was one of the primary exporters of beef mm-hmm. in the world and our beef ratings have continued to decline 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 we now have a whole situation with banditry and heads of cattle disappearing without a trace so what exa- what exactly happened between 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 being a net exporter of meat to where we are now uh, that's a very good um, and I like to talk about the beef industry because you know we are told a few decades ago uh, Botswana farmers used to come to Kenya to learn about beef and the beef industry is now South Africa as well same here now Kenyans are going <laughs> to Botswana to to and those countries have gone up so I think we we got off the production um train and anytime a country gets off production you know remember growing up you had all these industries and cooperatives uh those are the days where you had manufacturing going on so i think we kind of a lost track in 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 the passion of production we stopped asking ourselves you know if i'm producing uh beef worth um a million kgs how can we move it towards 2 million kgs we stopped getting off that we look at gdp yes Uh, GDP is a gro- gross domestic product but the problem with GDP is it can be skewed you can have one industry like a bank uh, or a telco really contributing so much to the GDP but it's not creating jobs because those sectors are very high skill very capital oriented uh in nature so you it's contributing on paper yes or if you think about infrastructure the the challenge the previous administration had was you know infrastructure is great it, it unlocks an economy but the problem is is it doesn't hire a lot of people it doesn't absorb 
yes, you have a few engineers, but it doesn't absorb uh, a lot of people. And what we need in Kenya is what we call labor-intensive sectors, like agriculture, you know, like tourism. Those are very labor-intensive. So if we can invest in labor-intensive sectors, then uh, more jobs are created, more people end up producing goods, and there's more productivity. So I think it's in that philosophy of, you know, can we make this economy about jobs, creating jobs? And, you know, we were talking about the U.S., and the U.S. every month, second Friday of the month, they'll publish a jobs report, and they'll tell you, you know, the previous month. I think if we can borrow that model, where it's about how many jobs are being created, then you can see more policies being targeted towards that. You know, if you look at the statistics, yesterday the, the Daily Nation had a really nice piece on uh, the employment labor market in Kenya over the last 10 years. You know, if you look at public service, that has gone up almost 50, 60 percent. But if you look at agriculture, the number of jobs created in agriculture over the last 10 years, it's actually stagnated. It's actually even, even negative, slightly negative. So it tells you uh, we're not creating enough jobs, whether it's in dairy, whether it's in beef, whether it's in pyrethrum, we're not creating enough jobs in those sectors, and those are sectors that can absorb a lot of people. So I think it's really going back to, can we produce more? Can we create more jobs? And I think that if we can make that the fulcrum of our policy, I think we can do tremendously well. So what needs to be done to, and I'm sure you can remember there's a time when you walked into a supermarket with a thousand shillings, mm. you were able to exit with a sizable bag of stuff that you've purchased. But now, once you go into a supermarket, the likelihood of living with more than three items is very low. So what, what do you think needs to be done so that this consumer uh, price index can start looking favorably, you know, to the consumer where we are going, we are, well, I mean, I think we can't really go back to where we were, but kind of go back to where you can say a thousand shillings can feed me maybe for three meals. Well, I think, um, you know, the issue of the subsidy removal was a very political topic uh, late last year. And um, our fuel had been subsidized, uh, flour had been subsidized, a number of basic commodities. You know, when things are more affordable to people, there's a lot more economic activity. So it goes back to our tax policy. Are our tax policies making the ordinary things like fuel more expensive or less expensive? When fuel is at 178, 79 right now, what you're seeing on the streets being becomes a reality. There's nobody on the streets. But if you can bring down that to 150, 140, 130, you find somebody who might have wanted to come to the CBD once a week will come four times a week because it's more affordable. So I think it's about making the basic commodities, whether it's electricity, you know, if it's electricity, the barber who's able to use his machine to shave four people, now he becomes has enough to be able to shave uh, 10 people. So I think it's about look at the basic commodities, whether it's food, your unga, whether it's fuel, and making sure those prices are uh, within the reach of people. So people are able to do activities. As long as people are doing activities, that it means it's growth. But I think we remove the subsidies very, very quickly. I know IMF has been putting a lot of pressure, but I wish we pushed back on some of these things. I wish we had told the IMF Yes, we will remove them, but gradually, how do we wean off the economy 
of subsidies, but removing them very quickly, I think it presented major shocks. So what households are earning, uh, they have to now conserve it and they can't uh, uh, spend on anything else. So I think it's look at everyday commodities, whether it's food, particularly food and fuel. When you talked about the inflation at uh, 9%, when you look at food and fuel, it's about 13%. So it's extremely high and it's an extreme struggle. So I think that's what we really need to look at. Is, do you think there's a way where we could or the government can achieve um, being able to pay debts without really overtaxing some of these commodities that we, ha- we are highlighting on? For instance, if one unit of power used to shave 10 people at the price that, let's say, at 50 shillings, then, but then now one unit of power can only shave one person. Does, if we reduce the taxes on the, um, on, on electricity, for instance, to be able to kind of give one unit of power to shave four people at 100 shillings, would that stimulate the money that is being pumped into the economy? But then how would that affect how we are able to pay back our taxes, sorry, our debt, our especially external debt? Uh, that's a great question, and there is a relationship between um, government revenue and taxes. So the conventional way we say is, you know, when tax revenue goes up, then government revenue also increases. But it's not an unlimited increase. At some point, it actually levels off. And that's what, is what we really call the Laffer curve. And it says that, yes, you increase tax, you will increase your revenue, but it's not um, infinite to up to infinite. At some point, any further tax increment will actually mean your revenue starts coming down. So you think of maybe somebody who sells textbooks, for example, and a VAT on textbooks go up from eight percent to ten percent. He'll do his calculation. He'll be. He'll say, you know, I can still make profit, so he'll continue. The next year, you say VAT has gone up from ten to twelve. He'll do his calculation. He'll say. You know, I'm still making some profit, so I'll continue. But in the third year, you say, let's increase that VAT from 12 to 14. You know, you'll say, I don't make any profit now. I'm actually exiting. I'm actually closing the bookshop and exiting this market. So what the government was getting from that revenue from that bookshop, what was going up originally, now starts going down. So the fiscal policy experts have to ask themselves, at what point are we on that curve? And a lot of people tell us we are the plateau, where any further tax increments means people stop consuming. Whether it's on SMS, they say, you know what, I'll stop SMSing, I'll just WhatsApp. They change behavior. So it really depends at what point on that curve. And if you continue adding those taxes, actually start seeing the revenue ironically coming down because people are moving to other things, people are changing their behavior. And that's where I think we are as a country. So we need to make sure that we start going back, reduce those VATs, those taxes, so that people are able to do more activity. And when people do more activity, the government gets more revenue. And when they get more revenue, they're really able to repay um, all those obligations. So before we go on this break, what are some of these things you think the government should undertake to stimulate manufacturing, for instance? Well, manufacturing, they've really complained about the excise taxes. You know, if you look at beverages, if we can reduce those excise taxes because you know think about a typical beverage company 
when excise tax is added, for example, on you know this order that I'm having right now, um, the normal consumer might say, you know, it's too expensive now. Let me just go and find something cheaper. So he stops consuming. So what manufacturers have been saying is, let's moderate our excise taxes so that more people are able to afford more goods and more activity happens. And I think that is what needs to happen. Really, the, especially excise taxes, that's really what's crippling our manufacturing. And unfortunately, you'll find, you know, due to the nature of our country, there are other people who are not paying those excise taxes. So it's even really not a very uh, competitive uh, sort of uh, landscape, if you like. So I think the key thing has to be, how do we make manufactured goods cheaper? You know, if you look at the China Square issue, people are going to China Square because things are much cheaper because the income of the normal Kenyan has not changed. In fact, in many cases, after COVID, it actually went down or uh, remained flat. So that Kenyan is looking to get as much from uh, that income as possible. So the local is for the cheapest opportunity, and that's when the China Square phenomenon has really catch on. So I think the government needs to ask ourselves, how do we make Kenyan products more affordable? How do we reduce uh, the taxes on these things so they are more affordable, so that Kenyans continue to partake of them, so that there is activity? That is sort of like the silver bullet we'll be looking at. When we come back, we'll ask Ken, is cash king, or do we continue sticking with compound investments? Financial Focus with Ken Gishinga and I'm Danny Muni. Now, Ken, just before we went on the break, we were discussing manufacturing and how to stimulate manufacturing. But are there elements that come within manufacturing, say, uh, outside of excess, excess tax? What else can be a supplement to make sure then that manufacturing kicks off? Uh, well, most um, products that go into manufacturing are, tend to come from the agricultural sector. Um, so if you look at how the agricultural sector is performing in terms of its ability to produce raw material, that's what informs agriculture. So think of uh, something like pyrethrum. You know, there was a time Nakuru was almost like the largest pyrethrum producing in the world. All insecticides in the world exactly. used to be made. Exactly. exactly. Now you think of uh, Australia came up and really picked up that uh, space and really uh, ran with it. Uh, I know they have been trying to revive it, uh, but, you know, you can't have a good insecticide uh, industry unless your pyrethrum is, 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 is being grown. Um, same thing for dairy. You know, if you want to make your cheese, if you want to make your butter, uh, it's important that your dairy is doing well. Otherwise, if your dairy is coming from Tanzania or from uh, Uganda, uh, then it affects your ability to do it. So I think manufacturers incredibly depend on the agriculture sector. If we can produce more here, agriculture-wise, uh, we take a load off manufacturing because you don't have to import. The reason manufacturing is expensive in Kenya is we are importing our, a lot of the inputs are being imported. That's why the end products become so expensive. And the consumer says, you know what, I'll just get something cheaper from abroad. Because yes, I want to support Kenya, buy Kenya, build Kenya, but it's too expensive for me. 
because they're on a limited, the incomes are not going up. So I think it's really making sure those linkages to agriculture are very strong. And looking at, let's say, for instance, if you're importing machinery, even without zero rating the tax on the machines that majority of the manufacturers invest billions and billions of to bring into the country, would some sort of rebate assist in, you know, because manufacturing, I'm presuming, absorbs a lot of work, a workforce. So would that really help in terms of kind of bringing back that um, developing of local produce, then we change our focus, maybe just if not a lot slightly into uh, an export kind of economy. That's a fantastic uh, proposal, Danny, and I completely agree. You know, there used to be an entity called the Agricultural Financing Corporation. Uh, it still, still there. exists, yes. Uh, but in the 90s, it was a very powerful entity, and their work was to really uh, lend credit to farmers uh, for land purchase, for uh, equipment. And for me, I think it was a visionary thing, and I really wish... Uh, we can do the case study and expand on it. I know it's still there, but you don't hear uh, much as it used to be. And I think that's it. You know, if you talk about capital, because we talk about the factors of production, when then you talked about is capital, which is your your harvester, uh, your plower, your tractor. You know, if these things can be affordable to the ordinary farmer, because you know when you go machinani, you'll find it's one person who can afford these things who ends up doing all the applying for everybody. Yeah. and stuff, and they try to make a profit yes. um, of, of that. But if you can make financing of agricultural equipment more affordable, and you say anything that goes to agriculture, whether it's pesticides, whether it's fertilizer, whether it's, you know, the role of that agricultural finance corporation, I think needs to be at the heart of agriculture transformation because that is where uh, the economy really begins. Now, in this economy where we're in right now, today gold down, crude oil down, copper down, soybeans down, wheat down, they're all in the red. The price of steel, however, is in a strong green and it keeps going up. Would you say for a Kenyan who's looking to invest or to grow the income, is cash king or do you do we continue piggybacking on 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 compounded investments? So, for instance, trades and commodities, money market funds, bonds, equities. What would you say if you compare the exchange rate of the Kenya shilling to the dollar and holding cash? Which one would you? Which one would you rather? Well, when you talk about commodities uh, globally, um, the key driver in terms of global price of commodities tends to be what is happening in China and the United States. So China is the largest importer of commodities. So the nature of Chinese demand, and China really, its imports have gone down because it's still feeling the effects from COVID. It's not importing. So if China demand for commodities is weak, it means the prices of those commodities um, go down. The US again right now, as we speak, uh, they could be doing another rate tightening. They could be doing more interest rates. That also has an impact on, on commodities because it means people won't buy. The demand for those services will not be there. So somebody who's looking at global commodities will say, okay, Chinese demand is weak. So likely that's the reason all those commodities are going down. I think steel is a bit different 
because the property market like in China is extremely high is extremely important to the economy so construction still goes on as you find steel is sort of on a different tangent from the all the other commodities uh but net off i think somebody sitting in Kenya and i think i wear two caps on this obviously an investor will look at, at the bond market here you know look at your infrastructure bond in your 17 years and saying wow this thing might cross 14.2% think about it dan you're getting interest you're getting risk free returns at 14.2% and that's why there's little money going to the private sector because this money is going to the bond market so the bond market will people will always say buy your bonds but as an economist i get worried because if all this money is being drained and going into infrastructure bonds it means the private sector will remain very weak you know that whole idea of pesam fukoni uh, becomes a very distant um illusion but you know what drives the economy is private sector demand so if a lot of money is going into the bonds uh it's very worrisome because it means your private sector is very weak and that's where the demand for goods and services are not there so i think from an economic perspective you know i'd say we need more money going to the private sector but as an investor right now looking at all these things you're saying i'll take that bond any day because it's giving me you know double digit returns and it's risk free you know instead of let's say looking at it from a, a very simplistic way because when you use the word investor it also sounds quite grand but in a pebble size um individual way let's say i for example would would you advise me to hold cash or would you advise me to put it somewhere because and the reason i'm asking is i would hold cash but then with the inflation happening and the and the, and the exchange rate uh, not working in favor with our shilling then the value of what i'm holding becomes less and less and less so what would be the best way for an individual somewhere who has some little money to be able to see either some sort of return or growth in their in their little money uh you know that also depends on the risk appetite and different people have a different risk appetite There's somebody who is looking for uh long term returns and they'll go for those very safe uh very safe stocks uh very safe uh long term bonds uh but you know when you look at it uh, comprehensively you'll want to ask yourself what is the end objective because different investors have different um investment profiles so somebody will go into real estate and real estate has really good returns but uh, the challenge with that is it might not be as liquid as stocks for example so i think the number one principle is you know diversification you know that portfolio can you diversify your portfolio where part of so you can buy your stocks your safe stocks which perform very well uh, but also you can sort of try and get maybe a slice on uh, what's happening sort of like on 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 the local bond markets and the fund managers are make it very easy for people to be able to they they buy on behalf of people so they have, they have, it's not as complicated as it used to be uh but if you ask yourself what are the growth sectors of the economy because ultimately the investor will ask himself what are the growth sectors of this economy you know the key drivers services have always been doing very well um in this particular economy services in Kenya appear to be doing uh, much more vibrant than for example agriculture which has been really weighed down by uh the rainfall and stuff so i think the net effect is to look at sector performance 
uh, but also to look at diversification. You don't want to put all your eggs um, into one basket. You have to ask yourself, okay, do you want to get into real estate? Then that's uh, there's some segments. You know, if places like Hong Kong, you know, the land prices have really skyrocketed there, so you can get good returns. So it, ultimately, different investors have different profiles, and I think this is where somebody sits uh, with their advisor and they look at what are the short-term, medium-term, and long-term objectives uh, to be able to achieve uh, what they want to achieve. Thank you very much, Ken. Time for the hype now. If you allow me, I'm happy that you've agreed to host me on your show next week. If I'm here, we'll look at factors of production and see how we can stimulate Kenya's economy in comparison to other economies around the world. Many thanks, Danny. Thank you very much.